Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll hear how New Jersey is getting ready for a transportation pilot program called Trenton Moves. Provide transportation, a new kind of affordable, safe mobility to people who have one or, or fewer cars in the household. WBGO's John Kalish reports on how the coronavirus pandemic has led to the development of a new chair designed for those who are working at their homes and desks. Turner Osler spent 30 years as a trauma surgeon in Vermont. When he retired from the operating room and started working as a researcher, he developed back pain. I'll chat with NBA legend Dick Barnett, who is the subject of a new documentary, The Dream Whisperer. My game was bad. My skills were complete. Everybody could be had. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. The fifth annual Princeton Smart Driving Car Summit took place this week with a heavy focus on the new pilot program in Trenton called Trenton Moves. Joining me on the WBGO Journal to talk about the current status and future of mobility technology is Fred Fishkin, host of Textination and Smart Driving Cars podcast, and Dr. Alan Kornhauser, faculty chair of Princeton Autonomous Vehicle Engineering. This all has to do this year with the Trenton Moves movement and what's going to happen with that. Trenton Moves is a whole mobility effort that's going on in the city of Trenton. 100 autonomous vehicles, self-driving shuttles. And Alan, tell us why this is so important, because Trenton is really closed off to transportation for everyone, isn't it? Well, you know, it's not as good as it should be. I think, uh, you know, many of us have the, uh, the privilege of, of owning cars and being able to just roll out of our kitchens and into a car and go wherever we want we want uh, anytime we want it. And you, you look at the, the, the value proposition and our quality of life that that gives us, it's, it's, it's really great. And, and, and for, you know, more than a few people, they don't have that. And, um, and uh, for them, um, you know, it's, um, it's pretty much, a, it, you, you either walk it or, or pretty much you, you only get to go to a few places that the bus might take you when it decides to take you. And so the, the whole freedom of, of mobility that, that we, that, that just so improves our, our lives isn't available to many. Billions have been invested into self-driving vehicles. Fred, where are we at this point? Are we ready to have this technology be used? Now we know that like a pilot program here in Trenton, but how close are we to every city can have this? Well, the thing is, Doug, and here's, here's the, the, the real point, I think. This, the technology is ready enough. It's being used in a number of cities around the country. The started Waymo has been doing it, which is a Google uh, company in Chandler, Arizona. Now they're in Phoenix. There are other companies, including Waymo, that are, that are doing this in the San Francisco area. So it exists. It's happening. What's not happening is making use of the technology where it's really needed. Most of the people who've been able to take advantage of it so far already have cars, already have several other ways to get from A to B, and it's, it's easy for them. And taking an autonomous vehicle for a ride, it's maybe like going to Disney, going on a ride there. I'm using a lot of Alan's words since we've been doing the podcast for five years, but this, the significance of this 
is bringing it to Trenton and many, many other Trentons. This is, this is just an example of what's going to happen. It's not just, we're not just focused on Trenton. Don't, don't get me wrong. Trenton is important, but if we do it there, we can do it many, many other places. Provide transportation, a new kind of affordable, safe mobility to people who have one or, or fewer cars in a household and don't have a way to get to Walmart or wherever they need to go. And that's the real significance, how it's being used. It seems, Alan, that the hurdle that most people would have to get over is the safety issue when they hear about self-driving vehicles. What can you tell our audience so they that's not a concern anymore? Well, um, I guess I can say a few things. I think what we have to do is really demonstrate it. As Fred pointed out, there are really only two places in the U.S. Maybe they're the only two places in the world. Maybe there's another place in China or not. Let's not talk about that. No other place in Europe, no other place in Africa and South America. Only you know, two places, uh, Chandler, Arizona, Phoenix area one, and the San Francisco two are places where people can actually get into a vehicle. And, and I always use the elevator analogy. If you think of an elevator, you just get in, there's no operator, door closed, it moves, a you know, door opens, you get out, and, you know, that kind of trip. Okay, only two places where now the, the automated system gets you from the A to the B, okay? What, there's of course the issue of, the key issue is safety, okay? It doesn't crash, it doesn't run over bicyclists, it doesn't run over kids, it doesn't, you know, of course, run off the road and all those other things are of course important. Key to the, to the Trenton Moves concept is that the technology exists, but we would still have an operator, an elevator operator in there, for it's two years probably to acclimate the people to realize that it's okay. And so in a sense, just to provide that, that, that comfort zone, it's again, think of an elevator. If you were, if you're in 1943, New York, the elevators, there was an elevator operator in there, you know, whatever. And so on. 1945, they were going, Gone, right? You know, uh, right? Because they, they really didn't need to do one. One then gets gets enough comfort on it to, to do that. It's a, the two hundred billion's been invested in the technology. Essentially, nothing has been invested in the sociology. So, one of the things that's key about Trenton is basically establishing a system in which a hundred vehicles are basically sitting there, just like an elevator is sitting there waiting for you, like a little puppy dog to be used and you just get in there'll be you or another greeter there say please come in uh, this will take you hi hello doug how are you today and so on and 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 uh, you know after two years of this you'll sign and say hey okay doug uh, you know move on we you know we really don't need you and that, that's the thought because th then it can become affordable as we hear you talk i can only think of gee how innovative the tech technology part of the show Knight Rider with, with Kit, you know, with David Hasselhoff talking right. to his car, Kit, and, and, and driving around on its own. Fred, you could have got involved in any kind of effort, you know, as, as just a veteran news guy. Why is smart driving technology something that tickles your fancy? 
Well, I th the potential here in, in working with Alan, uh, it, it's more than the tech. I'm never going to own a car that drives itself. There are a lot of issues that would prevent that. Uh, one being the, the, the insurance is, is the company I buy the car from going to pick up the tab if I have an accident, if they're saying the car can drive itself. So there are some big issues there. But the idea of using the tech to provide some real social good is so important. And it's rewarding to me as, as a journalist and getting to work with people like Alan. I've known Alan for well over 20 years. He had a company that was really a, a pioneer in the whole space of uh, a vehicle navigation before we started using Google and other software to, to get around in our vehicles. Alan was doing this a long time ago before even the phones were powerful enough to, to, to do the job. So I've known him, I've followed uh, his work, and uh, it's really an honor to work with him. You can see our entire conversation about smart driving cars on the WBGO Facebook page. By the way, Fred Fishkin was the first WBGO news director back in 1979, and we owe him a great deal of gratitude for help starting the world's greatest jazz station. More Americans now work at home as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and some are focusing on a healthier way to sit at their desk. Some are using yoga balls or kneeling chairs, which require the use of one's core muscles to balance. In Europe, active sitting chairs have become popular. They have a seat on a spring or a rolling device that force users to maintain their balance. WBGO's John Kalish reports on the active sitting movement and a Vermont doctor who has designed his own chair. When you spend several hours a day on a traditional office chair, you're hardly using your muscles at all. But active sitting chairs force you to use the muscles in your back and abdomen, the so-called core muscles, to remain seated. The body is burning fatty acids known as lipids as fuel for those muscles. It's a healthier way of sitting, says Herman Ponzer, an evolutionary anthropologist at Duke University who studies metabolism. If you are completely just limp, laying in a chair, like a wet wash rag, then you aren't pulling those lipids in. There's no need for them. So they just continue to pass the muscles by and continue to just float around in your bloodstream. So keeping your muscles active in these otherwise resting postures keeps us healthy. Healthy in the sense that back pain is less likely, and burning calories to remain balanced in your seat lessens the chances of such metabolic diseases as obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. Turner Osler spent 30 years as a trauma surgeon in Vermont. When he retired from the operating room and started working as a researcher, he developed back pain. I just sort of suffered with it for a few years before I said, this is the sort of problem that needs to be figured out. And I've got the tools. I've studied math and statistics and surgery and anatomy and epidemiology. So if anybody has a chance to riddle this out, I do. Dr. Osler believed that his back pain was the result of sitting so much. He bought a bunch of expensive active sitting chairs, which are popular in Europe, and became convinced he could create something better and cheaper. So he and his son started a company called Core 360 to make active sitting chairs in Vermont. Core 360's chair looks like a traditional office chair without a back or armrests. It has a patented rocking mechanism consisting of two intersecting cylinders that enables the seat to tilt in all directions. 
The company has sold its chairs in 31 countries and expects to sell its 10,000th chair by the end of the year. Core360 also gives away plans for a kid's chair to do-it-yourselfers. So far, the plans have been downloaded more than 2,000 times. At one Vermont school, a hundred of the kids' chairs were made, thanks to the husband of a school employee who owns a woodworking business. At Westford Elementary School, the second graders get to decide whether they'll sit on a traditional chair or the DIY version of Core 360's chair, called the button chair. Its round felt seat is secured to the wooden base with bungee cord, causing it to look like a button with four holes for thread. The seat rests on a small ball, so kids have to balance themselves on it. Here's eight-year-old Salve Wammer. Sitting in those normal chairs felt like normal, and I wanted to try something new. I am able to put my feet down, and they just keep me from falling off the chair. Her classmate, Sebastian Pante, has fallen off his chair a couple of times, but he's still keen on it. It's just really comfy, and you can move around in it. I really like moving around. And it helps me get out more energy. Sebastian Pante is far from the only child in the elementary school with energy to burn, says counselor Stephanie Jones. You know, a lot of kids use hand fidgets to help them stay focused. And this is an actual chair fidget almost that helps students that need to move a little bit stay at their seat and continue to work. The kids' chairs can be made with $10 worth of plywood, says Turner Osler. We put hundreds of active chairs under kids for basically no money. It's as though you're stuffing a chair through the internet. You know, it just emerges at the other end if somebody has a CNC router and some plywood. If you don't have access to a computerized cutting machine, there are also free plans for cutting the plywood with hand tools. Turner Osler says that by promoting active sitting, he's hoping to have an impact on public health. When he was a surgeon, Osler could help one patient at a time, but now, he says, that reach is extended to everyone. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. One of my most recent guests on my podcast, Sports Jam, is a basketball legend in so many ways. And there's a new documentary about his long, frustrating, but successful quest to get his all-black Tennessee A&I college basketball team inducted into the Hall of Fame. And now here he is, called the most exciting shooter in basketball, Dick Barnett. When I played for the New York Knickerbockers, they called me Fall Back Baby. Barnett with that fallback shot of him. In college, they called me the Skull. Great southpaw shooting star for Tennessee State. My students call me. Dr. Barnett. I've even been called names that I'd rather not repeat. But I call myself the Dream Whisperer because everything starts with a dream. Champion. Oh, one more time. Make sure on his right to number 12.
the dream whisperer basketball legend dick barnett's long challenging and historic journey to get his collegiate team inducted into the basketball hall of fame is the subject of an inspiring new documentary the dream whisperer and joining us fallback baby skull barnett dr richard barnett two-time nba champion with the knicks dick barnett so great to have you on sports jam it's a pleasure it's a pleasure being here look forward to it no i have to admit to you your narration in this documentary brought tears to my eyes your struggles with segregation on all kinds of levels racism mixed in so amazingly with archival footage of not only your basketball career but the civil rights movement and done in such a professional way as we expect from eric draft the director now that you look back on this long journey to get your college team into the hall of fame what impacts you the most when you watch a dream whisper well, it was just a, uh, I, I think our feet, feet was so uh, instrumental and, and obviously had never been done before. I, I thought that automatically would have put us in the Hall of Fame. It really has to make you wonder when you see in this documentary how many years it took and what you had to go through to finally get this to fruition. And one of the sad things about this documentary is that people who are in it because it's 11 years in the making, many people are no longer with us, including Coach John McClendon's wife, who was so emotional in the documentary. No question. No question. What do you want to say about Coach McClendon? Well, no, I, I always uh, characterize Coach as an as a iron fist in a velvet glove. And he was uh, uh, very subtle in his utterances. Uh, but uh, you, you understood that he, uh, he worked at the, at the elbow of uh, Naismith, so he had uh, tre tremendous credibility. And he eventually got in as a coach. He was in early as a contributor. But goodness gracious, how long did it take his three-time back-to-back-to-back -back -back champions. That team that you were on, is there one game in particular that makes it stand out? I would think it would be your first championship, right? Because you guys were not expected to do anything in that tournament, ranked 32nd, in fact, and you won it all. Uh, no question about it. And it really came down to the last 17 seconds when uh, we won a jump ball and the ball was tipped to me. And I uh, dribbled the uh, length of the court and decided to pull up for my uh, fallback jumper. And fortunately, it went in. But uh, I, I characterize that. And looking at the March Madness now, we, we, we didn't have a day off. We had to play night to night to night consecutively without a day off. And, and one of the things I'd like to emphasize, I don't know if you know about it, Perhaps you do. The, the NAIA was a forerunner uh, to the NIT and the NCAA. We, we, we really wanted to play Bill Russell and the NCAA. In 1957, nine years before Texas Western's NCAA title over Kentucky, there was the Tennessee A&I team, now known as Tennessee State University, 
the Tigers. And while Texas Western became the first team to win the NCAA title with an all-black starting lineup, your team, Dr. Barnett, Tennessee A&I, was the first historically black colleges and universities to win the national championship tournament. And in this documentary, you have some of your teammates and you lost a few of your teammates throughout the course of well, this well, I lost a number of my teammates, no question. And that's why I felt the urgency uh, to, to get this uh, historical uh, feat memorialized uh, before, uh, you know, before I pass. One of the most fascinating things about the Dream Whisper is the fact that the students, the current students, and even basketball players, at Tennessee State, had no idea about your team, Dick. Well, that, that, well, that, that, that shows you the kind of thing that we were up against. Uh, it's very regrettable. And I talked to the president of Tennessee State, Dr. Glover, that that, that should be rectified. One of the things that, that, that should happen, uh, every student that is enrolled at Tennessee State that, that should be a recommended part of their orientation. They should know the history of Tennessee State. We finally got on the ballot in 2011. Please welcome the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, Mr. John DeLiva. We are here today to announce those that have been elevated to the level of finalist and have taken the next critical step in achieving the ultimate honor in basketball, induction into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. You know, they, they got certainly some good discussion. The, the team was clearly noticed by the committee, it was discussed, um, and they didn't get a, the acquired votes to, to be elected, but clearly they are eligible uh, for the next three years at least. You know, they were on the ballot for the first time and didn't really receive enough attention to warrant them being included into the Hall of Fame. Now the problem is, not everybody who's voting knows what Tennessee A&I has done. You know, you really have to dig deep into who these people were when it goes back to 1950s and 1960s. All Halls of Fame, including basketball, uh, started as halls that are honoring white men. Well, there certainly has to be a, a, something that's famous about what has happened. Congratulations to all of the finalists. Thank you all for being here for this great announcement. You know, that's, that's what the Hall of Fame is. It's about bringing people in to see famous people or famous teams. But fame is fleeting. Thank you again. It felt like time was running out. Every day that passed, what we accomplished faded further and further away. I thought the best place to continue my quest was in Nashville at TSU. And even during your journey, it seemed like the interest fell off again. You know, they heard about Tennessee A&I going into the Hall of Fame and they're like, he did it. He did it. He, he got them in. They almost like forgot about it. <laughs> yes, uh, so yeah, it was uh, critical that uh, stay focused with the, the issue uh, of, uh, you know, I was chasing a, was driven by a dream unknown at, at that particular time. 
a destiny unseen and a voice unheard. Then I went to the court every day, honing my skills so I could make them pay. There were no off days and time to relax. My moves and my touch had to be exact. Four to five hours a day I would put in. Rain, sleet, and snow was part of the toll. At the end of this ritual, my game was bad. My skills were complete. Everybody could be had. I was the talk and toast of the town. Handshakes, publicity, and offers abound. But my dedication had a regrettable flaw. My classwork was shoddy, and it was mostly my fault. And I tell this story anywhere I go about my uh, reformation, you might say, uh, to become Dr. Barnett. I wasn't a very good good student at Tennessee State. I really didn't take education seriously. And the best thing that happened to me was uh, ironically rupturing my Achilles tendon. Uh, it was a wake up call. The chickens came home to roost at Madison Square Garden and said, Dick Barnett, you better go back to school and get serious and get ready for the future. And you did just that. And not only did you start working on a tremendous education, and now you teach and have taught for many years and yeah. get the respect you deserve as Dr. Barnett. But then you went on to win two NBA championships with the Knicks after that. So it no showed question. that you prepared yourself, but you still were able to come back and do an amazing job. I want to talk about the fact you, you know, you had one of the greatest jump shots and shots in history of the game. And it started off with you shooting ping pong balls ping into a tin cup. Balls in a tin cup. <laughs> in a tin cup uh, at the friendship house, a place where I would go after school to socialize, play cards and uh, be with the females and and some of my classmates and uh, shoot uh, start shooting ping pong balls. Kind of tough, but uh, I became very proficient at shooting ping pong balls and into a tin cup. The the, the coaches at Roosevelt heard about this and uh, said, if you can do that, you should be able to be uh, be good enough to put this basketball into this uh, into this basket. And and that that's what transpired on the playgrounds of Gary, Indiana, of Roosevelt High School. Everybody in my neighborhood was black. Life was segregated. The only white people I ever saw on my block were the police. This was the America I knew in the early 1950s. He was real, real quiet. We didn't have a lot money-wise. 
and we lived in the basement apartment. My mother, she was a waitress, and she worked as a clerk in the grocery store. And my dad, he worked in a mill for a while, the steel mills for a while. I think maybe one of the reasons why I guess Richard played ball was he wanted something better for his life, money-wise. <laughs> Had to be his freshman year at school. They were good at the basketball. But we went to an all-black school, you know. The boys could play basketball, but we couldn't leave the city. So you could win city-wise, but you couldn't go to the state tournaments and all that stuff. You couldn't do it. Dr. Barnett has a way with words. He is a poet. And also, he's one of the few basketball players that have had a jazz tune written for him. Harold Mayburn and Christian McBride on the bass. Too late, fallback baby. You were friends with Harold Mayburn, right? No, no, no question about it. Exactly. Exactly. Are you a fan of jazz? (laughs) Uh, Some, somewhat. John John Coltrane. Exactly. Uh, When when you hear that song, what, what, what makes you... Well, I, well I, it really reminds me of, of playing basketball when I uh, had to go out and play on uh, the concrete courts uh, of Roosevelt High School. And what, what we said, we, we, we came out to, uh, you know, it's either put up or shut up. Dream Whisperer made its screening debut in New York City earlier this week. You can hear my entire interview with Dick Barnett as well as all the past Sports Jam shows at wbgo.org studios. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.